Hi, my name is Chris Stoker-Walker, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production focused on the why of business, media, and marketing. It's made by my team at Neural, a digital agency for challenger brands and talent. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Chris Stoker-Walker, freelance journalist and author of TikTok Boom and YouTubers. Uh, Chris, we're just talking about the weather, as everyone does when they small talk. Um, How's the north of England been the last 18 months during this pandemic for you? It's been okay because a lot of what I do has always been based anyway at home. So I found it all right, but it's starting to turn cold and dark. And I know that it's completely opposite where you are, which is always very, very nice and always very weird to to kind of discover that you know, we're living on parallel universes almost when it comes to seasons and things. But it's been okay, actually. And I've, I've kept busy, been writing the second book, which is always nice. Um, and I'm glad that you know some of the other freelance work kind of tamped down a little bit because it gave me more time to dedicate to the book, which was important because, frankly, everything changed with TikTok over the last 18 months. So it was kind of yeah. important that I was keeping attention. Well, it was very interesting. Some of the initial points made in that book, we'll come to the book later on, but um, looking at the changes it's had just even in the last six months is, at least here locally, is quite astonishing. I know globally it would be similar, but Australia is normally a backwater for media innovation. Not not a backwater, but I, you know, we're typically two, two years behind on things, but they are quite forward globally when it comes to creator outreach and stuff like that. Tell me about you growing up as a kid, though. What's sort of your earliest memory? So, I mean, I was always a writer, always really interested in doing stuff. I initially started writing, like, fictions, things, and then was really keen on PlayStation 1. I was a Sony fanboy when I was a kid. I had no time for those Nintendo people and those Sega people. They were terrible people. And so I started like doing reviews of games for myself because I got a, a kind of tiny Apple computer maybe when I was like six or seven. Looking back, it was absolutely terrible, but it's kind of had like desktop publishing software that allowed me to to make my own magazine. So I did that. I found that a few years ago and sort of think, thought like, wow, this is weird. I kind of knew what I was wanting to do way back then. So had a lot of time doing that, enjoyed playing a lot of football, as you do anyone in the, the north of England in the sort of 1990s would like that sort of stuff. And yeah, games and football were my life. And then um, as I became a teenager, it kind of evolved into the internet, which is you know, good and bad in many different ways. <laughs> well, that really defined our generation. Like you're my age as well. So we're both millennials that really defined our generation, like growing up on, at the dawn of the internet. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing, isn't it, right? Like, we've seen the whole gamut of it. Like, we've seen the early terrible sites with, like, the marquee tags sort of scrolling along and the weird flashing text and, like, the bad clip art, you know, glowing text generators. And then we've seen the advent of, like, Flash and, like, early video that was kind of, you know, hosted through, like, .rm files that you had to download terrible real player for. And then suddenly we've got streaming everything and you know the development of mobiles and apps and it, i don't know it, it's 
it's weird because my, my grandparents always talk about like how they lived through huge numbers of change. Like they're, they're kind of like in their eighties and they, they have, they've essentially seen like the industrialization and the mechanization of the world. But they keep saying to me, like you have seen more change in your life so far, your 32 years here than like probably anybody ever will because mm. everything has changed in some way. Yeah. Because computer growth um, being on that growth curve, curve is quite exponential, but, you had a review from, uh, I think it was Azim Azar. I used to follow his uh, blog quite a lot. And he used to document a lot of these growth curves. I would be intrigued to see what the growth of technology would have been like for us in the first 30 years of our lives versus our grandparents. I still think like, you know, the period, if your grandparents are 80, they probably were the similar age or are the similar age as mine. They were a little bit older. They would have been born around the 30s and 40s. Like, War often is that thing that pushes massive, massive change technology-wise. So, yeah, I think it would be really interesting to see that on a growth curve. Yeah, it's difficult because how would you plot the two things? Like, yeah. it is it's different, isn't it? Like, so they they seem the right. Like, yeah, you know, my my granddad is, was a TV engineer, so like, you know, he saw cathode ray tubes. He like <laughs> he's he was kind of developing these. He installed like one of the first satellite dishes in the UK to get like you know sky and you know international TV channels coming from weird satellites beaming down from space. Like that is incredible in its own way. And then I guess what you see is what we consider iterative changes on like you know a small area like our smartphones. Like you know they are developing small bit by bit, year by year. But on a grand scale of things, like it's incredible that you have essentially a computer that, you know, is more powerful than the one that sent people to the moon in your pocket, like by, yeah, by that, factors. Yeah, that 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 starts to blow your mind. Um, yeah. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I don't know. I didn't really know. I So I, I did a story recently about how I think that like, certainly in the UK, careers advice in schools is terrible. And I, I did it largely because I'm, one of the theories that I might have for a third book is that I want to do something about how we're not teaching kids the right skills for the jobs that exist nowadays, largely focused on like the creator economy. So everything from like YouTube to TikTok to, you know, if you're a developer on Roblox or something like that, like, I think that careers advice is terrible. So the careers advice that I got when I was like 16, 17 was you filled out like a form with your interests and it was like you could yeah. be a journalist or you could be a florist or you could be something else it's like well i don't know so i, I always wanted to be a writer because i can i was able to write naturally um which i appreciate is is not something that everybody has and a lot of people feel quite envious when i talk to fellow journalists and they're like how do you put out so many stories every single week and i'm like well it's because i don't have to like redraft and i don't have to think about when i put pen to paper it just kind of happens so it was always going to be a writer. And then I kind of decided that I didn't have enough original ideas to do like fiction stuff. Yeah. So I decided to do nonfiction. And one of the interesting things about nonfiction is something I'm sure that you find with like the podcast is by dint of the fact that you say you're a journalist or you say you're a podcaster, you get to kind of like knock on people's doors and call people up who you wouldn't be able to as a normal person and you be, you're able to just like get a, a university education from world experts with without actually paying for it, which I always find is like the best part of my job. I learn new stuff every single day. 
Yeah, I mean, if with a, a podcast, I'm sure it'd be um, very similar to being a journalist. Is you can just say it, it's a lot easier to say, "Hey, would you come on my podcast?" as opposed to, "Hey, do you want to grab a coffee?" Yeah, or do you want to have a Zoom call? It's very easy to do stuff like that. And there's been instances of people where I've wanted to learn from them because they're in a field similar to me, and I want to. Uh, really just learn about what they do and i say let's do a podcast and surprisingly <laughs> they've gone oh no no i don't like being in front of the camera because of the nature of what i do can we get a coffee which is quite funny but yeah it gives you an excuse to interview anyone and everyone which i quite like what did your parents do growing up so my mom was a primary school teacher and my dad um worked basically at a warehouse for uh, the co-op which is like a, a uk supermarket so he would like pack and pick the stuff that they get from the big trucks and put it into other trucks that would then go to shops which is really interesting because it's like you know, we're focused in like the uk on class right and there's so you know um i'm always very upfront about the fact that i went to a private school like a fee-paying school but there's this huge dialogue going on in the uk at the minute um, around every single person that went to private school must automatically be like upper class toffs who are really really rich. It's like my, I literally just had this conversation the other day. Yeah, exactly. And it's like and it's like my mum was like a primary school teacher, and my dad literally works in a warehouse. Like not even like a manager of a warehouse. Like like he just moved stuff day in day yeah. out, and then he became a postman when he got redundancy there. Like at one point, he, between becoming the warehouse job and becoming a postman he had to work in a sandwich factory doing 12-hour shifts overnight like just filling sandwiches like yeah right it's interesting so what's the conversation going on in the uk at the moment because there, there was something similar here and uh, a group of friends we were chatting about it and i just said i find it really odd that because i went to a school and i was lucky that my brother got a scholarship and i got a partial scholarship because of that but it was still expensive to go to that school. It was a private school. And yeah, I was lucky, but like here in Australia, everyone says like it was, it was to do with an issue that happened. Like some former student at the school had raped someone and a brand had done a PR campaign about it. And always when you have like the daily mail, it's just like privileged school, blah, 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 or privileged student, blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there and I go, well, it just, it's not like that for everyone. Most of the people that I went to school with, their parents are self-made. They're not, you know, they're not sitting there from old money. So I, I guess I'm curious, what's this conversation that's happening in the UK? I think it was, I think it's more around kind of very, very exclusive Southern schools like an Eton and things like that and and there was this idea that they should all essentially be they, they currently have charitable status in the UK and they should have that charitable status taken away from them because they are exclusionary which I agree with like they are exclusionary um in many many ways like you know there is a different standard of education rightly or wrongly and and the more that I think about it the more I think it's wrong but um what I always find really interesting in, in that kind of particular discussion is that it's each side is right in their own way because they very rarely cross over. Like people who go to private school, a lot of them are of the sort of approach of, well, if you didn't manage to get in, 
or your parents couldn't afford it, then it's probably because either they didn't work hard enough, like my parents did, which I think is incorrect, or they think that, um, you know, they, they can't conceptualize the idea that actually some people do struggle so much to put food on a table that the idea of being able to try and put aside money by sacrificing other things is inconceivable to them. And I think that's like, that's really damaging because we discount the very valid concerns of people for whom private education is never going to be an opportunity. But then by the same token, the people for whom private education is never going to be an opportunity because they have their own lived situation. And because they always see the other people saying, you know, not being able to conceptualize of the idea that they have that issue. They think that everybody there is super rich and they can't, you know, there never seems to be this middle ground. There's always like, you're either super rich or you're super poor. Yeah, and the super yeah. poor people can't conceive of the idea that some people aren't all super rich. Yeah. And the super rich people can't conceive of the idea that those people are so poor when in fact, obviously they are. Like, and there are people in the middle. Depending on the side you're sitting on, it's either you're very good or you're very bad. There's nothing yeah. nothing in between. Yeah, that's that's funny. I, you know, speaking of studies in Korea, obviously... You did your high school at uh, Newcastle Grammar School, Royal Grammar Grammar Royal School, Royal Grammar School. I don't know which Royal one it is. Royal Grammar School. Yeah. Royal Grammar School. Bachelor of Arts at Newcastle Uni. Graduated probably around the same time as myself. I, I noticed that at each point you were sort of dabbling, dabbling in the school newspaper or the university publication of sorts. Straight out the gate, you're into PR, um, focused on the Northeast region. You've held various jobs in the marketing space as a freelance copywriter research analyst or press focused before you got into the writing component of your career, the deep writing component of your career, what seems like the golden principles from that period? I was just, I'm, I'm always interested in communicating. Like, I think that's what's interesting. One of the things that, you know, people often ask, like I teach, so I teach journalism at, at Newcastle university. I'm, I'm very much a home, like home, based home body person in that I haven't really I travel far for my work but I always come back and you know like I yeah I've never really left Newcastle but I have yeah, because right. I enjoy the idea that I can travel around and do journalism stuff um but so I teach at Newcastle University which is hilarious because it's you know where I did my English literature stuff and I teach journalism students and I often say to them like your job really as a journalist is to be a translator you take you know what are often very complicated concepts from you know leading experts in the field who know everything about it and your job is to try and like understand enough of that to blag it and explain it in a really comprehensible way to ordinary people some of whom you know will have a passing knowledge of it some of whom will have no knowledge of it and you know, what we do as journalists is translators so i think you know everything that i've done is that kind of translation thing, whether it was the initial PR stuff you mentioned that I was like a research analyst at an energy uh, consultancy. So like um, I, I worked at a company straight out of university that like um, traded North Sea gas and oil, which is super interesting at the minute for me because here in the UK and also elsewhere around the world, well, everywhere actually at the minute, there's this kind of energy price spike and the resulting crises from it. And so what I was doing there was Learning all about the market, doing market research, understanding trade flows of liquefied natural gas and things like that, and trying to translate that to clients in a way that they can understand to make better business decisions. So the, the kind of interesting 
start in journalism was that I, yeah, I was doing it, as you said, like at, at university and at school a little bit. Then in this office job, my boss at the time like read some of my reports and was like, you, you write like you should write for The Economist. So I took that as a, a challenge and then tried <laughs> writing for The Economist. And that's kind of how it all started. It sounds like you love telling people how something is once you've consumed it and then digested it, so to speak. That's, that's your thing. You like helping people understand what is going on. Yeah. And I, I'm really good on pub quizzes because I know very little about a lot of stuff. Like I can, you know, I can, you know, there are some things that I know more, more about in more detail. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't claim to know, you know, more than like a, a Brendan from Mechanism about like, you know, the social media world, but like I know more than the average person because I've spent more time focusing on it. But like a lot of my stuff is you pick it up, you kind of get a passing knowledge of it and then you translate it to a reader. And if you focus on enough sections of a certain area of society or a certain business, then you get to start to make those connections between the two. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always been one of those nerds that likes learning. I, I was pretty good at school. Like I was a, a SWAT to, to use the UK kind of phrasing. And that still continues. Like I like learning about things and how the world works. And then I get excited about it to the extent that I can then explain to other people um, in stories and video and audio and all sorts. Speaking of learning um, and this energy crisis, let's talk about that because I've been discussing this with some friends a lot in the last week. I'm very confused. I haven't dug into it too much. My understanding is that there are gas shortages and therefore the price has gone up. Do you know why there are shortages and where? So there's loads. Um, and it's, it's very, very complicated and difficult because there's all sorts of different things that go on. So generally, and this is kind of a very high level bluffers guide, and I should point out that like it's been five years since I worked, you know, day to day in the energy industry, but I have done a story or two for Wired um, lately about it. So I've been talking to people who are still in the industry, but you know, generally, um, you get you know, gas comes from offshore onto onshore. It then either gets piped to a place through underground pipelines, well, above ground pipelines, which can cross borders and can go underseas or it gets shipped on tankers which is liquefied natural gas so they they kind of reduce the um the temperature of it, it turns it into a liquid they put it onto a ship they send that ship around the world and then you get that arriving in a port so for instance qatari lng is huge um and russian natural gas is generally piped um, certainly to europe and the UK. So what's been happening is kind of a combination of um, yeah, the last 18 months have kind of turned everything upside down. We have had huge changes in the way that we consume energy. And frankly, we've not been doing as much. There's, you know, there aren't huge buildings and stores that need heated and powered. Um, you know, factories have kind of slowed down production as you know, we've stopped buying as much. So Essentially, demand dropped for energy more generally, of which gas is one relatively large section. Um, demand has started to bounce back up as the world has opened up a little bit. Obviously, I guess kind of Australia accepted to a certain extent. 
the people who have forecast kind of future demand didn't necessarily appreciate fully quite how much it would bounce back up. So there is this gap between supply available and, and demand that is there. Alongside that, you have allegedly companies sort of trying to take advantage of that in terms of knowing that there is this gap and pricing or pricing their gas higher and or reducing the amount that they actually produce. So Russia is, lots of people are saying that Russia is kind of not producing enough gas to meet demand through pipes. Um, So there is that issue. And then basically what that means is that the price rises, people are priced out of buying it or they try and find alternatives. But the issue is that alternatives, at least in Europe at the minute, which are like wind and solar, don't really, the wind has been unusually low solar has been pretty poor at the minute um you can also get electricity connections through so for instance there's a big electricity interconnector which is like a a sort of power line that goes from france to the uk that set on fire two weeks ago so it's kind of like a confluence of all this stuff which is is causing this big issue um and it's happening kind of worldwide yeah um my basic understanding was the thing that was the biggest driver was what you said is because of covid uh, people stopped, well, people were already stopping to do it, particularly in Europe, to invest in coal projects, which was the predominant, like you have an, there's still an issue that we have, you know, in this, in this segue to renewable energy, there's still an issue in periods of time like winter. Now, for places like Australia, it's not much of an issue as it is for, say, Europe, which can be a lot colder, particularly in Northern Europe. So it seems like COVID happened, the need for energy went down, I'm going to assume that a bunch of energy providers had shut down projects um, or stopped the running of plants that were potentially coal-powered because of what was happening with this shift. But that gap in, you know, supply, so to speak, was not met with gas or solar or wind, essentially. And so that's where the shortage comes from. And it seems like that's sort of what you've, you've said, essentially. Yeah, and what's really interesting is um, gas is seen as kind of the bridging fuel between the old fossil fuel history and the kind of cleaner thing. Like they, they literally describe it as the bridging fuel. There are arguments around that in terms of, you know, it, it is itself a fossil fuel, so you, you can't really say that. But anyway, they do. But yeah, like I, I've, just, I've just had a look because um, it's interesting. Like the, the International Energy Agency, you know, last year was a record drop in gas consumption, 2.5% drop in one year. And it's kind of been counteracted. You know, it's almost entirely bounced back for 2021 now but like you can kind of see like this is going along a long way and then it goes bang like that and it does take time to get that back yeah yeah gas prices are up 500 percent or something i saw it's sort of a similar thing this this we've got an issue here where um uh, and we've had it with some of our brands as clients uh because they're all e-com focus is shipping containers because australia is not we are a net exporter but we're a net exporter of raw items. So the tonnage for something that is leaving the country versus stuff that is coming into the country is a lot higher. So cartons, containers, whatever you want to call them, come here and they just leave empty. And it drives the price up massively because we're not making enough stuff to export. We're just, we're just, we're just sending out you know, stuff out of the ground essentially. And then there's obviously COVID on top of that. And so because of that, 
I heard the other day that uh, shipping prices on freight, shipping freight, not air freight, was up three or four hundred percent here locally, and people are bidding on containers now for Christmas, which is kind of scary. We had a friend tell us, if you want to get Christmas gifts, get them now. Yeah, that we had that here in the UK as well. We've like it, we had that about a month ago, where people, where like major toy retailers were saying we're going to have reduced lines for Christmas because. Yeah, the shipping, it's uneconomical for us to do it because a you know a lot of this stuff comes from China. China has been pretty trigger-happy in terms of shutting down stuff when they get COVID outbreaks. So, for instance, there's been a lot of disruption in kind of ports around you know, the ones that would actually ship out a lot of this stuff, yeah. um, which it, it, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, the analogy is like airlines, right? Like if you have a flight that is slightly delayed, that flight isn't just affecting that single flight, that route that you do, because it may go from like the UK to Germany, but then it goes from Germany to France and it goes from France to Belgium. And then it goes back to the UK and each one of those things is knocked on and the flights that are meant to connect to that are affected as well. So it's like, it's very much a just in time situation. And and when one thing is affected, then everything else is as well. Yeah. It's all going to calibrate. Talking about subject matter expertise, I mean, you cover, I would say, a lot of tech and media. So topics that I was just skimming through, you know, recently, by the way, the amount of stuff that you that you write for as a freelance is impressive. I mean, The Wired, Economist, Insider, The Times, Guardian, Daily Telly, BuzzFeed, it's all there. Um, it's interesting going through the library of content as well on each of these publications. So some of the topics I had were the gig economy, TikTok, edutech, education, YouTube, Zoom, like there's a bunch of stuff within there. Like I said, I assume that your subject matter focus is technology, you know, apart from this being this frontier of journalism, which is currently sexy and cool. One, how would you define the area of focus for you and why that specific area? Yeah. So, I mean, I do a lot of random stuff. I, I do everything from like writing about COVID antivirals for the British Medical Journal to CCTV for the Times to, yeah, as you say, like education and stuff like that. If I have to kind of, you know, if you hold a gun to my head and say, what are you? Then I say I'm a tech reporter. And the reason that I'm a tech reporter is basically because of what we kind of talked about in terms of at the start, the idea of like, I feel like I'm in a unique good position in that I do remember a world before tech just about and so I'm I'm kind of an advocate for the older generation you know millennials and older who are maybe kind of confused a little bit about you know the way that everything is changing and the impact that this you know always on social media and you know smartphone enabled stuff is is having on us while also being able to kind of hang in a conversation with those who have never known a world without this so i kind of i, I sort of again we talk about like you know translators and things like that and um being like a bridge between these two i, I kind of see myself as like being tech literate enough to explain the new innovations to older people who maybe don't fully understand it to older readers while also being kind of having being detached enough or having the ability to contextualize it enough to explain 
why maybe necessarily tech isn't always a great thing. And, you know, I, mm. I kind of describe myself as a tech skeptic, tech reporter for that reason. Like, I'm, I'm not one of those people that's like, tech is brilliant and is fantastic all the time. What if I told you the way to take your brand to the next level in 2021 is with TikTok ads? A lot of our clients come to us with a problem. They need to take their brand to the next level. They're typically doing 5 to 10K a month and they need to jump to that 25, 50K per month level and Instagram and Facebook just isn't what it was. So what's the commonality amongst all this? It is primarily opportunity in a saturated market and we think that TikTok ads today is the answer. Now, Neural follows a two-phase process to guide you as a challenger brand on the way to growth. Phase one is all about knowing your brand and niche back to front with a focus on breaking even or getting above a break even. Phase two is scaling that creative to blow up your sales in the process once we've secured you as the leader in that niche on TikTok. You do this with the right partner, a committed partner like Neural, and you'll build that confidence in an area that has typically been saturated in the past. It's not a silver bullet, and we'd love to chat to you. So book in a consultation with our specialist team. Just go to neural.com slash TikTok. That's N-E-U-R. A-L-L-E.com slash TikTok and we'll chat to you from there. You know, we found each other from uh, doing Brennan's interview and we spoke in Brennan's interview a lot about TikTok and this is obviously one of these areas that you've written a book on. Today, it's sort of, it's not the backbone of our business, but we it has helped us grow fast. No, number wise, I saw the other day we've got a billion monthly active users. Apparently, it's got greater watch time than YouTube on average per person. When you wrote that book, I think it was that time where Donald Trump was still in power and he was talking about essentially TikTok being the Trojan horse for the CCP in our culture, which Looking at the where the West is today with China doesn't seem like as much of a long long bow anymore, but it seems fascinating to look at that, you know, 18 months ago, what, what people were talking about. How do you see TikTok today as a media platform? It's the new Facebook. Yeah. And it's increasingly going to become the new Amazon. We're recording this the day after TikTok World happened, which is their big they they had their first kind of annual um showcase event and what was really interesting about it was though i and i kind of knew this already because you can see the direction of travel and i saw you know i've I've been in on presentations and i've received materials that i'm not meant to about like you know what what things they've been beta testing and alpha testing and features and stuff but they're going all in on e-commerce so like to me there's, there's two kind of things so one is and, and Mark Zuckerberg has noticed this in the, the past, the sort of last 15, 20 years of tech have been pretty much shaped in Facebook's vision. Um, and by Facebook, I also kind of mean more broadly Silicon Valley's vision. You know, we all adhere to their point of view and their societal norms, their approach to free speech, their approach to what is useful content and so on. In the next 20 years, potentially, I, I, I genuinely think this. I think that TikTok has a lot of issues in terms of it's growing so fast that it's not always the most mature company. And you know, I, I speak to lots of people who interact with it in 
your kind of business and other areas who who are frustrated that maybe the hype doesn't necessarily match the reality in terms of the people who are working within TikTok and they often find it quite difficult to get what they want from TikTok. Um, I think because they're just hiring so big and so fast and there's only a finite number of people with experience in this sector. Um, but um, you know, TikTok to me is potentially the future of tech and you know, what it decides to shape the future of tech as could have huge impact. So you mentioned the idea of Donald Trump saying that's a trojan horse for the CCP. I don't think it's that, but I did deliberately in the book use the idea that TikTok could be a trojan horse for a new paradigm of tech, uh, which is perhaps a little bit different because of the fact that it's being shaped by an app and a company that does have its basis in China. And that's not necessarily a thing to fear. I mean, I, I listened to the Australian parliamentary hearings that went on last year where they brought um, some of the head of TikTok in Australia, they, they had him up in front of the senatorial, is it parliamentary or senatorial inquiry, which was interesting, where he was saying TikTok is being used as a political football, um, which yeah, you can agree with or disagree with. But I think it's it's interesting to see that, you know, in the same way that TikTok, uh, that Facebook has had this kind of outsized impact on us and you know, social media through Silicon Valley in general has had this outsized impact on us in the last you know, 10, 15 years. I think TikTok could potentially be that kind of super app that we, we interact with in lots of different ways for the next 10 or 15 years and could have you know a similar impact to facebook in in shaping a lot of our norms yeah so this is a interesting point around the two now superpowers and their influence and what we have ahead of us like i feel that we're heading more and more towards a cold colder wall and that may because obviously being in australia we're sort of at the forefront of what is going on with china at the moment i mean last week we had the AUKUS. Uh, alliance announced which essentially Australia is getting nuclear submarines I would say that individual in charge of TikTok in Australia at the time and they they said that they are right in some way that TikTok has become a bit of a political football and I you know when we think about the internet research agency in that 2016 election and people start to say oh, disinformation, misinformation, it was all aligned to one specific side. It never really is. It's always just about making people confused on either side. So it never has ever a focus on distorting towards one team or another. It's just about creating friction in, in democracy. And so the outcome of that was people pushed back on Facebook. They were annoyed. There was Senate inquiries. All these sorts of rules came out of it. And I wonder, are we now just going to see the same thing with TikTok where it becomes the next platform where our political angst is accentuated again? Or do you think there's potentially something else sinister there? Which way do you move towards? So the way that I explain it in the book and the way that I explain it to all the people is that I'm, I'm not the world's best journalist, right? Like, I'll be honest, I'm decent, as evidenced by the fact that I write for all these different places, but I'm not like Woodward and Bernstein or anything like that, right? I write about silly things on the internet, but I do have the ability to do decent kind of investigative reporting. 
um, to a, a decent level, not an amazing level. I haven't been able to find the bat phone that connects Xi Jinping and Yumin Zhang. Okay, like, I, and it's not yeah. for a lack of trying because I, I am good at my job. Like, I'm not the best at my job, but I am good at my job, and um, I, I wouldn't be sitting on a scoop like that if I could find evidence that TikTok is a deep state plot for China to exert its power, if it's that sort of thing. I think what's what's interesting is that there is an element of, you know, you mentioned the Cold War and this idea of a new Cold War. I think that there is inadvertently a kind of parallel here between, you know, the sort of 1980s when we started to get Western pop music, McDonald's in Red Square and... Levi jeans appearing in in the Soviet Union and kind of the the knock on effect on society of that, which you know, from what I understand, wasn't a deliberate thing by kind of the West to try and bring down the Soviet Union. It was just kind of a cause and effect in a way. TikTok, I don't think, is a explicit tool of the Chinese state, but we know that they have the Belt and Road Initiative and we know that Xi Jinping has talked about like sending out um, you know, cultural emissaries to talk well about China and things like that, um, which you know, makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I, I think that it's also interesting that you brought up this idea of like the the political fury about Facebook and things like that. And I, you know, I, I empathize an awful lot with the fact that people are concerned about TikTok because they have correctly diagnosed the issue, which is that social media is a big concern and it is having kind of pernicious effects on all of us that we don't necessarily fully understand and that I think the platforms involved don't necessarily fully appreciate how much they are able to affect us. But the actual, you know, so we've diagnosed the illness, but the cause of it, we are incorrectly diagnosing as China is trying to overthrow the world. Um, it's at least in the the sort of idea of TikTok here. And I, I don't think that is the case. I think there are concerns around certain things like that, but like, I don't think it's here that... One, one example really, really quickly. About two years ago, when I was doing publicity for my YouTube book after it came out, I went on, um, I think it was the PM program on BBC Radio 4, which is like one of the big uh, news programs on radio in the UK. And someone asked me, it was about like the time that you know, the US army was banning its soldiers from using TikTok and things like that. And the point that I made was like, it seems really stupid to do that because if you're concerned that a Chinese spy is going to be watching your daughter's bedroom through the videos that they post on TikTok. If you ban TikTok, all they need to do is go to Facebook or YouTube yeah, and no, see the yeah. exact same video. <laughs> like yeah. it exists already. We post this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, t I totally agree with that. Look, I, I, I think TikTok is no different in its potential for uh, disinformation or misinformation than any other platform. I've seen, you have to dig very deeply and look for these accounts, but I've seen state-run propaganda, but it's not anything that is unusual that you see on Twitter. In fact, the more prominent on Twitter, they are passionately aware, uh, and it's very clear to me that it's propaganda that they put out on Twitter. 
I actually think that um, like being at the forefront here in Australia and seeing how in depth this thing in China is, it's it's a little bit more complex as we both know. It's never as grey, sorry, black or white as people think it is. But you know, the the communist state and the entities that they own is very different to the tech group of people who run their own companies in China. And in actual fact, Xi Jinping is trying to recreate the days of Mao, uh, Maoist China, let's call it, um, by making the state more socialist and less capitalist. And he's actually sidelined and in some cases persecuted ultra-rich tech entrepreneur, and particularly the tech sector in China. Like Xi Jinping does not like the tech sector because he sees what it can do for giving people freedom and insight into their their own lives. So there's no that's the reason why Jack Ma and others have basically come into trouble with the Communist Party. And there's consistent talk about the fact that these entities could be broken up by um, the Communist Party in some way or partially owned by state-run assets, etc. So I, d- I don't think TikTok is any different to Facebook. No, and it's super interesting seeing this happening right now. Like, there's a lot of intervention in the Chinese market from the government. Like, they're starting to have this pretty significant crackdown on these yeah. platforms. Um, and what I find really interesting, and you know, it's one of my big frustrations about the book is that TikTok did not give me access to Yim and Zhang. You know, the, the founder of Bike Dance and TikTok, not for a lack of asking, and they still haven't. In fact, in the acknowledgements, I say um, thank you for all the help that you're giving me in terms of connecting with people because they were quite generous for a book that is certainly far from um, you know, uh, a glowing profile of them. You know, I, I kind of highlight in the book lots of issues, some of which have not been reported before. But um, you know, one of the things that I do say is that like, I would have loved to have spoken to him because from what I gather from speaking to people who know him and who have been around him and who kind of revolve in his, his circle is that you know, he, he is kind of an interesting character in that he is essentially a massive capitalist. Like he, he yeah. consumes, you know, airport biographies of, you know, tech CEOs and business titans, you know, hugely. And he, he wants ByteDance to be, you know, in quotes, as borderless as Google. He wants a global company. Um, but he's also a pragmatist and he's aware that he exists in this highly controlled state and has to abide by those rules internally while at the same time trying to play both sides. He's, you know, he's kowtowing to the state in China while also trying to head off the criticism that he is too much in thrall to the state from yeah. elsewhere. No, I think most of the criticism of the tech companies is unwarranted. I think it's unfair. I think they represent the people that we should be supporting in China. Um, and there is a whole sect and group of people politically that support that, you know, within the Communist Party that support those group of people. And they are uh, Xi Jinping's direct competitors, essentially. So... Yeah, it's it's always really interesting. Like when I googled um, the founder, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Is it Zhang Zhang Yiming? Yeah, basically. So when you search his name and you look at the articles that come up, it's always articles that counteract each other. It's like the Chinese Communist Party is cracking down on entrepreneurs. Uh, 
TikTok is a mouthpiece for the CCP. It's like, which one is true? You know, like either they represent one end of the political spectrum or they don't because uh, we know in China that that exists. So I always find it really funny reading that stuff. And I think that the tech sector represents the liberal, open, democratic version of China that we all wish, at least in the West, that we wish existed. Yeah. What's really interesting is that it's both. Like there is the opportunity for it to be both. And I think that's what's fascinating in the book. And there's a a guy that was at QUT over in Australia who's now moved over to a French university, a guy called um, D. Bondi Valvadinos K, who does some really interesting academic research. With some colleagues, he looked at the two uh, platforms. He looked at TikTok and he looked at Douyin, the the Western version of TikTok and the the Chinese version of TikTok. And he had this idea, this concept of what he calls parallel platformization which is that they are essentially the two same apps with some very, very small differences. So Douyin has a, an extra tab on its homepage beyond the, the for, you page, uh, for You feed and the following one, which is called the Positive Energy uh, tab, which is basically put there in response to a crackdown by Chinese censors that said that you weren't patriotic enough. So that literally just shows you propaganda. And TikTok is a fascinating case study. It's kind of why I latched onto it and been so intrigued by it because it is this app that is trying to serve two masters at the same time and trying to keep both happy and struggling enormously because you have china saying you're far too west and you need to kind of crack down on this and you have the west saying you're far too chinese and you need to crack down on this and they're not going to satisfy either in in doing that because it's just not possible when you look at the state of journalism, uh, you in your role today, you know, we spoke briefly about the creator economy, but I'm just, I want to focus first on people who are writers, let's say. I'm just intrigued by the ability of you to essentially be a decentralized business in a way. You know, you own your own Twitter profile website, you freelance for mastheads. You can write on your own Substack and be paid directly by people. How do you see that environment that you exist in today? You know, obviously there's book publishing on top of that, but how do you see it? Is it something that is becoming more achievable or is it as hard as it was 10 years ago as it is today? Is, is, so it's becoming more achievable to, and more important that you have your own kind of brand. And I, yeah, when I teach this to the students, I, you know, I, I teach them kind of the, the months before they go out into the real world and try and find jobs. And I always have, you know, every year now I have to present this really depressing slide, which is the number of job losses in, in the media every single year. And it keeps growing, which is astounding to me. But in its place, what you're seeing is as staffers get sacked from their jobs, they are being replaced by freelancers, which is, you know, um, probably not sustainable in the long run, sad, but it is kind of good news for people like me in that it means that, you know, while the rest of the industry is maybe declining at a faster rate, the opportunities for people like me are, are declining at a slower rate. Um, in terms of like the, the idea of like independent journalist branding and things like that, it, it's interesting because I'm Although I produce a lot and although I have these kind of two books that I can you know, hang my, my branding hat on, 
I often feel like I'm very much under the radar of a lot of people, except for like editors within the industry. I'm not a big brand name journalist. There are lots of big brand name journalists, particularly in the internet culture space. And you, know, you can probably list the sort of five or 10 biggest people. I don't usually come into that conversation. I think partly because I'm not in the US, partly because a lot of the stuff that I write is not personality driven. And I'm not someone who likes to put myself in the heart of stories and things like that. Part of it is just that I probably haven't spent that much time or effort kind of building up my brand as I maybe should. Um, so I tried doing a newsletter and like eight people paid for it two years ago. Yeah. So I didn't make enough money. It's an issue. Um, you know, I don't really know how you overcome it in terms of getting enough people who are interested in following you. So it's certainly if you are like a big brand name journalist who has 100,000 followers on Twitter or whatever, you can convert a decent proportion of them to become paying subscribers to a newsletter. For people like me, that's much harder. And so I do still rely on... A, the kind of, I guess, imprimatur of having a book, which you know, gives you legitimacy and you know, people will buy it because it's because it's a book rather than a newsletter. Or you rely on the, the mastheads that you talked about, the kind of brand names of these publications to, again, give you legitimacy and to bring you that audience. Mm. When you look at your process, uh, there's something I've, I've been intrigued about because I've, I've just been reading... Um, John McPhee's draft number four. And it was interesting uh, to see how he'd look to inform writers around their principles and process. And obviously coming from a copywriting background as well, you would be aware that all writers have their own tone of voice. What are your principles for writing a book? You're, you've, you're working on one right now. And what does that process look like? So for me, I'm kind of the opposite of John McPhee and I don't spend a lot of time rewriting uh, for my sins. <laughs> I, I used to really like Jack Kerouac when I was at university. That, I did my dissertation on him. And so for good or evil, in that certainly I'm not the world's best writer and I could be better if I did a lot of redrafting and stuff like that. But um, I'm, I don't have the attention span to do that, frankly. <laughs> I like to move on to the next thing. And so, yeah. you know, for me, it's a case of... You know, I figure out what I know about a subject. I figure out what I need to still know about a subject. And I figure out who can help me learn about that, do my interviews, and then just kind of sit down and build out the story. And almost, you know, in a very unglamorous, very kind of disappointing way for, for someone who's reading John McPhee at the minute, I just bash it out. You know, even with the book, like I, I, I kind of let structures find themselves a little bit and I, I i do admit i rely quite a decent amount on like an editor to help me think about a structure structure's never been my strong point um although i write like long form features that have acts and beats and all sorts in them um but i'm not one of those people and i know all these people and i speak to a lot of these people i'm not one of those people who gets out you know cue cards and puts them up on a wall and you know, crafts out, you know, this scene will be this and then we'll transition to this and then we'll move back in time to this. Like I just sit and write, which is a, a very unsatisfying explanation because it also means that it's very difficult for me to kind of like pass on 
how I do it because I, I'm aware that that's relatively unusual. Yeah, it is. Why, why do you think that is your process? It's just simply what you figured out as, as an individual or I guess I'm intrigued as to why you never really enforced like a, a structure, so to speak, because people can be aware of the fact that that's how they write, but then say, well, I have to do this, you know? I think I just do it innately. And I think like this sounds really kind of weirdly self-serving, but I have an unusual talent to just be able to write. And we, we kind of talked about this before we start recording and like lots of people slave very hard over being able to write. And I fully appreciate that. That's a challenge. I've never had that issue. Like from the age, like, you know, like, at school in four, I was writing like stories that my teachers were like, you know, made up stories that my teachers were kind of amazed by. Um, and I don't know what that is. I read a lot as a kid, so I don't know whether or not like I've just kind of like, it's washed over me the idea of like, you know, narrative and structure and things like that. And I just think about it innately, but it does make it really challenging because when I teach, I have to try and reverse engineer it and it, you know, it, it's the perfect example. Like when I was starting to get into journalism and like people, you know, you read a lot of like, how do I get into journalism websites? And everybody's like, well, you have to work really hard and you have to do this and things like that. And then you go, yeah, but actually like that's one person's experience and that's not necessarily emblematic of everybody else's. So for me, writing just comes naturally. It's kind of like walking. Like you don't think about how you walk. I don't really think about how I write, which makes it makes me a very frustrating case study for someone when you're like, how, you know, how do you write all these things and how do you do this? Cause it's just like, I don't really know. I just do it. Yeah. You just do it. You've done probably a few of these podcasts by now and you can talk about anything, but what's the topic you really wish that you could talk about that you don't get to regularly through your writing because maybe you're focused on tech or, you know, the books that you work on, because again, people may look to you for a certain type of topic. Is there anything that you really wish you could delve into or how have the the time and freedom to delve into? I find more fascinating the stories that aren't emblematic of the mainstream of these platforms. And one of the big one of the big frustrations that I have is that and this is a, a frustration that I know that like a, another fellow journalist here in the UK that covers internet culture called Amelia Tate has, who, and she's brilliant as well. Like, and she's more fruitful in this than I am because she's kind of now developed a niche, which is that if there's a, a weird thing happening in an internet subculture or something that's very much on the fringe, she will either get asked to write it or she'll pitch it to an editor and they'll have the confidence because they know that she's like the weird internet, tiny subculture thing. They'll have the confidence to commission it. Whereas with me, it's like, they don't have that confidence. They, they come back and they say, that's too small, that's too weird. And actually it's interesting to see like how these small things often bubble up and bubble up and then become kind of bigger things. Um, so I, yeah, I like the idea of like doing weird things and taking risks like, even, you know, um, I once went to like a money printing factory and wrote a story about that, which was okay. really interesting. I, yeah. I want to, you know, I want to do like 
I'm fascinated by like toilet rolls. I'm fascinated by factories, right? So I want to do a story on toilet roll factories. How do you get toilet roll? Like that sort of thing. How do you, you know, how, how do we get, you know, I want to visit the, there's a brand called Quorn, which is like a, a vegan food thing that's like, it looks like meat and it's basically been around since before Beyond Meat and all these things existed and it's huge but nobody knows about it i want to visit the corn factory and write about that I'm fascinated <laughs> by factories basically is that corn with a q by the way yeah yeah q-u-o-r-n what was that product that um soylent do you yeah. remember when soylent got launched yeah. holy yeah. crap man that was something else and i never realized like it was named after soylent green which so, so is like a movie where basically they blend up like dead people yeah. Um, and feed feed it to people. Um, wow, right. How long has corn been around as a company? Like 30 years. And it's, it's based in the north of England. It's based in a place, I think Billingham it's called. Um, and it's like, it's interesting because they've been doing this thing for years and years before it was sexy. And now he, like everybody's like, you've got to have fake meat burgers and you're going to have fake meat chicken. And they've just been doing this for like 30 years and nobody's been paying attention because it's not got the sexy tech branding on it, which is yeah. I find really interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's this uh, this gentleman back in the 1960s, Lord of Rank. There you go. Um, that's so fascinating. Yeah, it's always really interesting to find those journalists who have these little like niche areas that they can dig into, so to speak. I'm always super envious of them because that sort of, if I was to ever do writing would suit my personality because I just, I find a thing, go really deep on it, then bang onto the next thing because I get bored. And I can sort of see how like trawling Reddit all day long and finding random topics could be like one of those such areas. Reddit, TikTok, et cetera. There's always some sort of new trend or meme that that exists, so to speak. Mm. All right, I want to jump into some rapid-fire questions to finish things off. It's your morning over there at the moment, so this would be a good one to start with. What is your morning and evening routine look like at the moment? At the minute, it's get up early, watch my phone, uh, read my phone, all the news on it, check up on emails. I don't do breakfast, so like I eat like two biscuits and have a cup of tea, and then I get to work, basically. So I'm at work by like 8 a.m. on my laptop, Okay. sorting out stuff writing things and are you working you always work from home or do you have an office as well so i, I literally I, I became a permanent member of staff at the university in the last year and with covid we weren't on campus for a long time but this year they've given me an office so i technically have an office that i can go to um but i'm only going to go one day a week so i, I do literally just sit in this corner of my living room um, in my class <laughs> next to a park and work. It's 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 a very unusual life. It is. Yeah, I, I got to say I'm kind of sick of working from home. It's starting to wear on me a bit. 18 months into it, that is. Uh, evening routine. What are you typically doing there? Eat some food, cook some food. I really like cooking. And then just I invariably end up either watching like Netflix or... <laughs> Bizarrely, given the factory thing, like the, the programs that like like how it's made or something like that, I'm yeah, yeah. obsessed with them because they're just so unabashedly nerdy. So I'll end up watching them, um, go to sleep with my iPad, and probably read some stuff there. Uh, try and see if there's any stories that I can cover for the next day. 
because uh, you have to constantly, as a journalist, be coming up with ideas. So I'm trying to keep on top of stuff and see what might break in the next day. And then sleep eventually, which is difficult when you've got so much tech around you. But yeah, And so many that's, screens. That's the breaks. Yeah, what, exactly. um, what have you been watching on Netflix lately? So I watched, um, the most recent thing that I've been watching is the 9-11 documentary there, which is oh, yeah. kind of fascinating. Turning I've Point. Been, yeah, been drip feeding it, which is really, really good. And I I am a sucker for true crime stuff. So lots of things there. But I also, my friend recommended, I can't remember what it's called, let me have a look, to show about like deep fried food, which is also uh-huh. a passion of mine, um, which is, you know, you can't see because I'm sat down, which is a relief. Um, you can't see the impact of deep fried food on me. Fresh fried and crispy, which is on my list now to watch. Yeah, right. Fresh fried and crispy. If you have the time, I thoroughly recommend you go check out um squid game that is that's uh just been released the last week and apparently in every single major market like europe the uk australia us it is the dominant show at the moment nine episodes it's like saw meets kids games it's fascinating really really well done and you can tell it's done on a on a low budget but that like they've, they've, I'm pretty sure they've renewed season two, and you can tell it's going to be their next big show. It's really good. Um, Chris, thank you for coming on. Thanks for reaching out, first of all. Um, no and uh, thanks, Brendan, for the verification that yes, it was worth having Chris on the show at least. Where can people find you on the interwebs? I am on LinkedIn under my name but I, I, I'm terrible at checking LinkedIn because I find it a horrible hell site um, okay. so the best place is probably Twitter so I'm at S-T-O-K-E-L Stokel on there okay um, we'll make sure we link everything there both LinkedIn and um, Twitter as well but um, Chris thanks for coming on the show thank you for having me thank you so much for checking out this episode if you liked it do subscribe and of course like it on youtube if you're watching as well we'd really appreciate that for audio if you've not already listening on your podcast app you can search for it on any good app including spotify Podcasts, apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, etc for video if you're not watching you can search uncommon podcast on youtube it's the first one that appears every single time but behind the scenes do follow us on instagram and tiktok it's at uncommon underscore show But until next time, thanks for tuning in.